Sarah fell back asleep this morning. I probably shouldn't say that. Sorry. Uh, Sarah's not here yet, but she's going she's gonna to be joining us shortly. So we might have to uh, try that again. Hey, good morning, church. Hey, good morning. I am glad to be with you. Uh, welcome also to our neighbors. Glad to be with you. We are in a, a sermon series this season that we've called Regifting. Um, and the, the premise is pretty simple. Uh, regifting has kind of a bad reputation. Um, the, the idea being, if you get a gift that you're not super excited about, you could, instead of opening it, um, or instead of returning it to the store and getting you know, store credit, you could rewrap the gift that you got and then give it to somebody else. Now, uh, it's not really... A, a, um, if you, were do, if you were participate in this, let me say, you probably don't talk about it very much. Um, it's, it's not something that, that uh, people really have a lot of respect for. And for a number of reasons, we've talked about them. One of the th- reasons is like it, it says something about the relationship between the first giver and the first receiver. The, the first giver didn't know the receiver well enough to know that they would not be enthusiastic about this gift. And, uh, and it says something also about the second giver and the receiver, the second giver didn't care enough about the person that they're giving it to to have thought of something to get on their own, and so they're just kind of recycling goods. Um, so that's, that's like why it gets a bad rap, but I've been trying to redeem this idea I've, for whatever, whatever, whatever sense. Um, I've been trying to redeem this idea and, and point out that anything, any gift that we give, whether we bought it brand new off the shelf and wrapped it specifically for the person that we're giving it to, any gift that we give is a re-gift. Every good gift, every blessing, every privilege, everything that we enjoy in the earth is a gift from God. And for us to give a gift, in order for us to share our treasure, is a re-gift. We are taking that which God has given to us, and we're using it to be a blessing towards other people. Um, and so I'm trying to, to, to reshape kind of how we think about uh, our possessions, how we think about our material possessions, how we think about our time, um, and, and do that through this lens of regifting. So we're in week three, and we're going to be looking at a story that's probably familiar to us. And usually, I would prefer not to talk about this story in particular um, before Christmas or, or on Christmas, I would usually wait until after Christmas. And I'll tell you why um, after we pray. Before we get started, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, navigate there. Uh, It's going to be on page 1008 if you're using the blue Bibles that are here in the chairs in front of you. Uh, 1008, Matthew chapter 2. Um, and this is called, the, the, the title of this section is called The Visit of the Wise Men. Uh, the Wise Men, and verse 1 opens, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, in the land of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. Now, typically, when we think about the wise men, um, we picture them as an accessory to the nativity. 
We think of them as, uh, like we even, we even have one, uh, they're not there, actually, on that one. Uh, we think of them as an accessory to the nativity. When we think of a nativity scene, we've got Jesus and Mary and Joseph, and then we've got all the stinky shepherds. And then contrasted with the stinky shepherds and the poor blue-collar worker dad, we have these wise men that show up that are dressed in royal robes, and they're riding camels, and they've come from a long way. They're astronomers. They follow the star. Like It's all this special thing. We think of them as an accessory to the nativity. But by the end of this, we're going to see that this, this, their arrival wasn't at the nativity. They didn't show up until maybe a year, maybe two years after Jesus was born. So that's typically why I wouldn't want to talk about this story until after Christmas time, because it kind of drives me nuts when we take pictures of the Bible and we get them out of order and we put things together that don't belong. Um, so at the same time that I'm trying to remove the wise men from your image of a nativity scene, I'm also going to talk about them before Christmas. Um, but I've got a reason for it, okay? So if you'll forgive me and, and, and journey with me. Let's read together Matthew chapter 2. And I'm going to do something that's a little bit atypical for me. Typically, I'll read a couple verses. We'll talk about them. I'll read a couple verses. We'll talk about them. I'm going to read a whole section here. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. And then we'll break it down. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, quote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. If this story is familiar to you... Um, we can kind of wash over some of the details. We can overlook some of the things that are happening. Um, and we can miss the intense drama that is actually taking place here. Um, this is actually a life and death situation in a, in a number of different ways. Um, and the whole pinnacle of history is turning in this event. It doesn't look like that. It looks like a bunch of rich guys took a road trip um, to spend a bunch of money. Right? It looks like they just wanted to throw a bunch of money away, and so they took a road trip. And yet, there's something that's happening behind the scenes that I hope we can discover together this morning um, that, that is absolutely fascinating. I typically, again, I typically wouldn't talk about this before Christmas. I would wait till after Christmas. But we have a, 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 an excellent privilege together as a church. Um, 
we have just journeyed together through the book of Daniel. And, and, you, and Daniel's not a book that that's, people are really comfortable with. Daniel's not a book that people uh, really like to talk about. And particularly, people don't want to talk about Daniel at Christmas time most of the time. And yet, we're blessed because we've just gone through that. I think I can tie some threads together for us that are going to be super helpful in, in understanding the import and the impact of what is occurring at Christmas, okay? So that's, that's why, we're, why we're, we're focusing our time in together. So I actually have four questions, and this is an unusual outline for me, but you guys are going to do great with it. I've got four questions that I want to answer, and uh, we'll get to the big idea. Question one, who are the wise men? Who are these guys? What does it mean? Um, second, what is their purpose? Why do they show up at all? They're kind of a weird accessory. T three is, why did it matter? What, what's the significance? Why did it matter? And, and, and number four, perhaps uh, if you can hang on with me this, this is where you want to, why does it matter today? So who are the wise men? What was their purpose? Why did it matter? And why does it matter? That's, that's the outline for the morning. Okay, we ready? Who are the wise men? Think about this. You have uh, a nation of, uh, named Israel, and it is under Roman uh, occupation. So you've got a nation that exists, but it's been occupied by a foreign army. Uh, it's, it's, a Rome, it's part of the Roman Empire. But they have a provincial governor who calls himself the king, and his name is Herod. But he's, he kind of thinks pretty highly of himself. He's kind of arrogant. And so he calls himself the king. He likes to rule like a king. He's kind of uh, probably one of the worst uh, leaders and rulers in history. He's really, um, really not a nice guy. He's ruling over this province, and then you've got a group of guys, some wealthy guys, who are who go on a road trip and come in, and they say, "Hey, uh, we came to to we heard that the or we saw in the stars that the king of Israel was born, and we want to worship him." Okay, what like? What do you have to do with us? Like you, are, you're literally from a foreign. You're over from Babylon or from Persia. Like you, there are whole countries in between us and them. There is no internet. There are no cars. There, like there is no newspaper. There is no Twitter. There's no way to know about news that's going on hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, across the desert. There is a desert in between these two places. So like, what is the deal? Why are these guys coming out of? this foreign land, to talk about a nation, a king in a nation that isn't even connected to them. They're not even connected to them. Who are these guys? Remember Daniel. Where did Daniel grow up? Daniel grew up in Jerusalem. Daniel was captured as a young boy, and he was taken to Babylon to be re-educated as a Babylonian, and yet, even as he became prominent in the Babylonian society, even as the Persians then took over the Babylonian society, he stayed faithful to Yahweh throughout his time. He learned how to be a Babylonian. He, he learned everything they wanted him to learn in school. He went to a secular university, and he could talk forwards and backwards about evolutionary theory. He could argue molecular biology and understand why things were supposed to be connected, even if he said in his faith that God was the ultimate creator of all things. He did not engage in a culture war that pitted himself against what was going on. He engaged in the culture and became valuable to them. He had a faithful testimony, a faithful witness, faithful to the true God, faithful to Yahweh, even though he was in a culture that was completely hostile to him. That's a whole lot of summarizing. We did weeks in that in our series, Fanta Inner Fire. Um, 
Now, you've got guys who are somehow disciples of Daniel, who in that foreign pagan culture have some kind of a respect either for Daniel as a person or Daniel's writings, and they hold them in such high esteem that they think that what that guy wrote down is actually true. And they're using their pagan systems of understanding the world, astrology and astronomy, and saying, oh, these things actually point to what was going on back in Jerusalem, what was going on in Israel, and that's important because we got respect for Daniel. 500 years after Daniel died. Who are the wise men? They're, they're somehow disciples of Daniel. This one faithful follower of Yahweh in a pagan corrupt culture who continued to point people back to the one true God. That's, that's kind of incredible. <laughs> when you think about, like, okay, Daniel, at the end of his life, remember, he was really, like, bummed and busted and, and, and like, weeping and mourning and, like, my whole life has been worthless. And yet, we see here that his legacy carried on for at least 500 years because people took his writing seriously enough that they would pack up all of their things and travel across a desert to see if it was true. So that's who the wise men are. What was their purpose? One, they wanted to locate this king. Where is he? Uh, and they wanted to worship him. Uh, where is he who has been born, born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So there's something going on in the stars, some kind of a celestial sign that is unusual enough that they see it as a sign that the king of the Jews has been born. And there's an irony, there's some tension in taking this huge thousand-mile road trip through a desert to show up to the reigning king and say, hey, where's the king of, these, of this people? And he's like, well, you're talking to him. He's like, no, 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 the one that was just born. I don't have any sons recently. What do you mean? <clears throat> um, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. I'm the king, and you're saying there's a different one that's been born? Not only was Herod troubled, but all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Wait, there's going to be some kind of an insurrection? There's going to be some kind of a rebellion? There's going to be an alternate king to the, to the way that the system actually works? Like, not only was Herod concerned, but everybody in town is worried. And they say, the wise men say, yes, we've come to find him, locate him, and we've come to worship him. So Herod's trying to figure out, okay, where, where, where do, what do we do here? He assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and they're like, okay, where's, where's the Christ supposed to be born? When we read Christ, we probably are thinking that's like Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. Um, that's how most people curse about him anyway. Christ isn't necessarily, Christ isn't his last name, it's a title. It means Messiah, means the anointed one, means the one chosen by God. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they were like, oh, it's in Bethlehem. Well, what is Bethlehem? It's, it's a little town on the suburbs of Jerusalem where they raised sheep. All of the sheep that got sacrificed in Jerusalem at all their festivals, they were raised by special shepherds in Bethlehem. The little town, that uh, little podunk town that nobody really cared that much about. When Herod heard it, he, he, he summoned them secretly. He said, hey, when you find this king, let me know so that I too can come and worship him. 
so they go and they find him. As they're leaving, something changes in the sky again. They see the star that highlights where they're supposed to be and where they're supposed to go. So they follow this thing across the desert, and then it moves again to show them exactly where they're supposed to be, and they end up walking up to Mary and Joseph's house. Now, Jesus is some, like, he's older. He's not an infant. Uh, he hasn't been weaned yet, uh, but he probably, like, has a couple of words. And so you're living your life. You're the mom of a baby. You're living your life. You're a dad going to work, clocking in, clocking out. I got to build things. You're, you're, you're living your life, and all of a sudden, these three rich guys show up at your door and say, hey, we need to talk to your baby. We need to give your baby some praise because your baby is the king of the Jews. Now, we talked about Joseph last week. Joseph took, adopted this son. It's not his son biologically. And he took, by, by, bringing, by marrying Mary and by bringing, raising up Jesus, he laid his reputation aside. And so he's been scorned. He's been looked down on by everybody else in town. Everybody looks at them sideways. People talk about them behind their backs. They didn't even have a place to stay when they went home. Their family wouldn't welcome them into their house. They had to sleep out with the sheep. No reputation, no honor, and yet these rich guys have come across the desert to give honor, to give worship to their boy. There's something, I think, instructive to us about what worship is. When we think about worship, sometimes we think about what we do on a Sunday morning. And oftentimes the things that get in our head are the words that we say. If I worship God, it's about the words that I say. And the words are important. It matters that these guys say, Jesus is the king. That they hear what Daniel has prophesied, what the scriptures have said, that this is the king, and they agree with God that what God said is true. That's not nothing. That's an important component of it. But not only that, not only do they worship God with their words, with praise and attitude and acknowledgement that what God said is true, they also worship God with gifts. The gift of their time. They, they stopped their life. I don't know what their families were like. I don't know what it's like to like go home to your wife and be like, hey, I need to travel like four or five countries over, and I don't know when I'll get back. And I'm going to take a bunch of treasure with me, and uh, you know, we probably won't get robbed. I don't know. This wasn't, this wasn't just like get in the road trip and take a weekend. This was a months-long journey there and back again. They sacrificed their time to do this. They gave it their attention. Um, they put their reputation at stake. In some senses, they might be seen as like Babylonian or Persian emissaries. These are, these are leading men from a foreign country that come to a different country to pay homage to a king. Like there's, there's a sense that they might be... Uh, there might be some political uh, issues with coming and, and, and acknowledging a king other than the one who's like literally on the throne, right? And then they lay down their treasures, gold and frankincense and myrrh, to this baby. They worship God with their words and they worship God with their gifts. How do we show Jesus that he's valuable to us? If our words would say, 
Jesus, I worship you, if our words would say, Jesus, I value you, how do we show Jesus that, we're, that he's valuable to us? We honor Jesus with every blessed treasure. His wise men acknowledged that their whole life had been a gift. I can put that on pause to give Jesus the honor that he needs. I can stop whatever's going on in my life to make this journey. I'm going to take whatever I have that's of value, and I'm going to give this as an offering. I'm going to lay aside my reputation and put some political things at risk here in order to do what I know is right. We honor Jesus with every blessed treasure. We hold God's gift with open hands. So that's who the wise men are. That's what their purpose was. Why did it matter? Um, It mattered because the results of this were actually as real to them as the results of an election would be to us. You know that anxiety that the culture gets when we're coming up on an election and and one, and well, either or, but anyway. I won't get into a political commentary just to say that there's, there is a stress that goes into an election season where, well, is, is my favorite person going to win or is they going to lose? What are the, what are the policy ramifications going to be? This might have an actual change on my, on my workbook. Like, the, notice, <laughs> we want to read spiritual undertones into this, and we have good reason to, but for these guys, this was a political reality. They were foreign ambassadors going to a foreign nation to acknowledge a political king. That's how they thought about it. Why did they think about that? Well, the words of Daniel were in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, and then again in 27. This king that was supposed to come and be born in Jerusalem, that was supposed to be born in Judea, was supposed to set up an eternal kingdom. I'm going to turn there. I had not planned to, but I'm going to turn there. I want to read this again. Um, I think it is beneficial. Daniel chapter 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came unto the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. When we read about like Babylon or Assyria or we read about ancient Egypt, like those powers, like they sound like stuff in history books. It doesn't affect our life. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. We don't really like to think about that, particularly when we think about our own political situation, that there may come a day when our country doesn't exist in the way that we understand it to exist. And yet, these men are acknowledging that the king that is coming out of Judea will establish an eternal kingdom that will not pass away. And this is as real a political reality for them as the results of an election would be for us. 
Likewise, at the end of Daniel, this foretold the end of difficult persecutions and sufferings. Remember how worn out and exhausted Daniel was, how he was weeping? The the book of Daniel closes uh, with this encouragement that at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This eternal kingdom was tidings of the end of difficult persecutions. It was tidings of deliverance and of resurrection. And I find it interesting that we remember these men as wise men, and yet the book of Daniel closes with a promise that those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. There's a poetic thing that's happening there. (laughs) So why did it matter for the wise men? This was a king, a real eternal king. Why did it matter for Mary and Joseph? Well, you'll have to read the rest of Matthew chapter 2. Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Why did it matter that these wise men, these rich guys, traveled across the desert to bring and worship Jesus? They funded his escape. Joseph was a blue-collar worker. He was, just, he was living paycheck to paycheck. I don't know how work went for him in a religiously strict community when, when he said either he admitted by his behavior, not, not in actuality, but he admitted by his behavior either I have slept with my betrothed prematurely or I don't have the backbone to stand up for her uh, sleeping around. Either way, in in a strictly religious community, he had disgrace. And I don't know what work looks like when people aren't willing to give you a job. I I don't know the financial situation of what was going on with Joseph, but for Joseph to get away from the king, to pick up and move in a time where, like, there wasn't a car, he couldn't hop on a greyhound, He had to buy a donkey to get out of town. And then you had to feed it and keep it alive and make sure it had water. Like to leave is not that small of a thing. But suddenly he has the resources that he needs to escape. I find it fascinating because Herod had no idea what was going on in his own kingdom. Herod had no idea that the Messiah had been born. It was not on his radar. He was just living his life, and then these guys come in and like, hey, where's the king? He's like, I'm the guy. And they're like, no, you're not the guy. We want to worship the guy. 
the wise men tipped Herod off that things were getting ready to change. And at the same time that God is letting the opposition know that there's been a shift, he's also providing the way of escape. I'm not sh- so that's why it mattered for Mary and Joseph. <clears throat> Behind the veil, like we've, we've talked about Daniel enough, the enemy opposes what God is doing in the world. We all know the fragility of a human life and how easy it is to end the life of a child. And yet that is what God chose to place himself into. What happens if Jesus dies at this stage? What more would the enemy want in all of the universe than to take Jesus out at this moment? But I don't know that he knew where Jesus was. And I don't know that he knew what was going on. So not only are we talking about Herod and his pride and his ego and him like (laughs) murdering a bunch of two-year-olds, we're talking about the spiritual enemies of God that want nothing more than for this to be over. And God provided a means for escape. Do we trust that God has good plans for the gifts that he's entrusted to us? Do we trust that God has good plans for the gifts that he's entrusted to us? When, when he's tugging at your heart saying, hey, why don't, you, why don't you give some of that away? Why don't you provide that need? Why don't, you, why don't you go over there and you don't have to call any attention to yourself. Just take care of it. Like, don't, don't blow any trumpets. Just, just pay that bill for them. Just buy them that meal. Just pay for that prescription. I don't know, God. They're probably just gonna. They're not gonna. They're not gonna appreciate. They're not gonna appreciate the gift. They're, they're just gonna go on. Do we trust that God has good plans for the gifts that He's entrusted to us? We honor Jesus with every blessed treasure because we may not know how He will use it for good. I don't think the wise men had any idea what their gifts would mean to Joseph and how salvation history, the history of the world, the the, the turning point of all of history hung in the balance of this small infant, defenseless child that, that had a real threat against its life. And yet God provided a way, literally from out of left field, to preserve life. So, Who are the wise men? What is their purpose? Why did it matter? Why does it matter? Look, I get it. Like foreign kings have no sway over our lives. You care less about the king of Jordan than you care about like lunch, right? The king of Jordan has no power over you, no authority over you, doesn't matter. Like you might have some concerns about the, the, the leader of like Russia or something like that, but like by and large, leaders of other countries don't matter to you. So why is it significant? Like All of the stories, like notice, when you go back and you're reading the Christmas stories, notice that all of the stories about Christmas are 
only secondarily about the salvation of the earth. They are primarily about the king of the Jews. And we are not Jews. We're not Israelites. So why do we care today about the king of the Jews? Jesus Jesus didn't meet every expectation for the Messiah with his birth by Mary. There there were expectations that the people had about who the Christ would be, what the Christ would do, what the Messiah would do, and they saw him as ultimately and primarily a political figure. Like he was the king that was going to come and establish his kingdom. He was going to kick Rome out. He was going to fix problems in the world. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm the king. And they're like, great, you're going you're gonna to overthrow Rome. And he's like, that's not what I came to do. He didn't meet every expectation for what the king of the Jews was supposed to do. But God shows his generous character by making himself of no reputation. What he accomplished in his first visit made it possible for him to come and complete what he started. No, he didn't establish he did not like set up an eternal political kingdom out of Jerusalem the first time he came. But when he left, he said, I'm coming back. I'm not finished yet. And I'm leaving you here until I do. Why does it matter today? Because there's an open invitation to be citizens of that kingdom to lay aside our earthly attachments to our biological families, to our political systems, and to say, I want to worship him. I choose him to be my king. I'll stay here. I'll be an ambassador for that kingdom with the time that he's entrusted to me, but I want to go there. And the invitation is open. And the only hope that's going to fill our longing is Jesus' generous humility. Are we making Jesus our king? As we're making decisions, as we're forming relationships, as we're navigating relationships, as we're navigating politics, as we're figuring out how to work well, are we making Jesus our king? We honor Jesus with every blessed treasure because we may not know how he will use it for good. Would you pray with me? As I think about a citizenship exam, God, and, and all of the, the bars that we put people in or put people through and try to get them to jump over to become citizens of our, our country here, Lord, I'm astonished that you have an open invitation. When I consider my deeds, like, it's whatever. When I look at my heart, God, I am unworthy to be called your own. 
And you, the true light of the world, came into the world and came to your own people, and yet they rejected you. But those who would believe and trust you, you gave the right to be called children of God. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Fill our every longing. Reshape our hearts. Make us to be your people. That you might be our God. And shine your light to all the earth. Lord, come quickly. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We'll take a few minutes and reflect on how God's speaking this morning before we close together and sing. Thank you.